A reading from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles I shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For it is where you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Northwake. Um, last week, some of you were here, and you remember Carson gave us the example of the Truman Show, uh, movie from the 90s that had uh, some serious implications, uh, but for the most part was a lighthearted example. Uh, so quick disclaimer, mine's not lighthearted this morning because uh, this is the fall. Um, and so I want to talk about a different movie. I'm going to take us all the way back to the 1980s. Some of you recognize that movie right there. This is the original movie about a gang of neighborhood kids that find a pirate treasure map. Uh, they go on an adventure to find the pirate's treasure. They defeat the bad guys. And most of all, they take on and take down an evil property development group that wants their mother's house. Um, we actually uh, don't want to focus on the movie. We want to focus on the two guys that you see on your left up there, uh, the one in the yellow raincoat and uh, the other one that he has his hand on. That is Corey Haim in the yellow raincoat and Corey Feldman uh, that's standing beside him. Uh, the two Coreys were quite famous in the 1980s. Uh, they did a string of movies they did seven movies together, and when they finished the seventh movie in 1988, Corey Haim in the yellow coat was worth about $20 million. Now, let me help you out. In 2023, that's worth over $40 million. Some people worth $40 million that you might know. Harry and Meghan just passed the $40 million mark. Uh, if you're on YouTube or if you play video games, that's the net worth of PewDiePie and Ninja. Uh, if those names don't make a whole lot of sense to you, then let me try a couple of different ones. Uh, perhaps you've heard of Michael B. Jordan, Tom Holland, and Zendaya. All three of them are not worth $40 million. So that gives you an idea of how much the guy in the yellow raincoat's worth in 1988. You've probably noticed that I'm beginning to talk about Corey Haim in past tense verbs. Corey sadly died in 2010. When he passed away, he was living in the spare bedroom of someone else's apartment. Corey could have afforded any house in Hollywood in the 1980s. But he finished his life in a borrowed bedroom. Corey could have bought any meal that the world had to offer. He ended his life eating his mom's groceries because he couldn't find any. Corey could have bought 
anything that life had to offer. When he died, a celebrity memorabilia site sold off some of his stuff from these 1980s movies so that his mom could afford to bury him. So you talk about a great reversal. Here is a young man that had everything. The world was literally his oyster, and he died with none of it. Stephen Dempster is a biblical scholar. He talks about that the fall that's described in Genesis 3 is how you and I experience life every day. So sometimes it's hard to really grasp how great the fall of Genesis chapter 3 was. But imagine the perfect couple with the perfect life, with perfect food that's perfectly easy to prepare, perfect relationship, perfect place to live in, perfect relationship with the Lord God that they got to spend time with. And in a few short verses that Carter read for us this morning, they lose it all. This is the great reversal in chapter 3 of Genesis. The reversal is actually highlighted for us in the text. Uh, did you catch it as Carter was reading this morning that the Lord God entered the garden? He spoke to the man, then he spoke to the woman who blamed the serpent. So God cursed the serpent, spoke to the woman, spoke to the man, cursed the ground. The very text itself reverses the order for us. The way Moses wrote it helps us to see how backwards this becomes. In Genesis 1, and 26, God blessed the man and the woman, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. On the seventh day, God blessed the seventh day, where in Genesis so far, there had only been blessing. Now that's reversed too. There's cursing. There's banishment from the place of blessing. God, who had been their gracious benefactor and their creator, is now coming as their judge. So let's look through and let's unpack the text of Genesis 3 that we have this morning and uh, see what God's good word has to teach us uh, from this fall. Let's pray first. Father, thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to be here. God, as sad and as heartbreaking as Genesis 3 is, we know that you've put this in here to reveal something about yourself. God, you are our great benefactor. You're our father. God, you are creator of the whole world. God, you are the judge of sin. But thank you, Father, that Genesis 3 shows us you are a merciful and compassionate judge that loves your creation and doesn't simply wash your hands of us when we sin and rebel against you. Father God, thank you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9 with me this morning. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, Where are you? In the opening part of the story, God comes to get a confession from the man and his wife. Uh, the text says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord God comes and he walks in the garden with the man and his wife. Now, this is the same verb that God's going to use in later in Genesis when he tells Abram to go walk around in the promised land. Uh, the way this verb's used in these two places, um, we would say it's used iteratively. I know that's a big word. It means back and forth. So he tells Abram, hey, don't just go walk into the promised land. Like, oh, yep, here it is. Thanks, God. Right? Go walk around. Go see it. Go walk to and fro. And so you're like, okay, so did God come in the garden and as he's saying, Adam, where are you? Is he kind of walking around looking for him? Adam, you over here? Adam, where are you? 
right? No, it, it can also carry the sense of it, of habitualness. It's God's habit. So we might say, as was God's habit, he came and he walked in the garden, right? He shows up to meet with his people um, as was his habit. We also just saw the phrase, the man and his wife. Remember, Noah gave us that a couple of weeks ago. At the end of chapter one, it was uh, the man and his wife um, were naked and were not ashamed. Now the man and his wife run and hide amongst the trees. Again, that reversal that goes on in the text there. John Goldingay, an Old Testament scholar, he, he quips that far from gaining knowledge, remember when they picked the fruit that's desirable to make one wise? What they actually got was stupidity, thinking that they could hide from God amongst the trees. You and I are reminded of other places that we see this in Scripture. Jonah, of course, tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. Doesn't go so well for him either. David in Psalm 139 says, where will he flee from God's presence? In verse 9 it says, if I make my bed in Sheol, are you not there? You, of course, referring to God. One of the first questions the text asks of you and I, confronts us with, is how often do you and I try to run and hide, literally or metaphorically, when you and I sin? whether it's behind a closed door, behind a lie. How often do you and I think that we can hide from God Almighty when we sin? Adam and Eve thought the trees would be good enough for them. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, take a look at verses 10 and 11. Adam says, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So with God now on the scene, he, he questions Adam with these three questions. Where are you? And after, after Adam fumbles for a bit, God asks, who told you that you were naked? You see, this, this cuts to the heart of what's going on in this passage. Um, we might paraphrase this as God saying, Adam, what's the source of your guilt and shame? Where'd that come from? Notice that God's final question doesn't invite confrontation. God's asked these open-ended questions and given Adam a chance to response. The final one simply expects a yes. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Take a look at 3.12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. So notice Adam's not doing a whole lot better here. He hadn't, he hadn't figured out how to respond to God yet. So he's like, the woman blaming his wife that you gave to me, God, ultimately this is your fault. Let's be honest. You're the one that put me in this predicament. In his Genesis commentary, uh, Umberto Casuto, it's a fun name. He says, this is so characteristically human that people are inclined to justify their conduct by pointing to the circumstances and the fate that God has allotted them in life. Mary Catherine and I just watched a, an amazing documentary on Netflix. It's about the band of teenagers uh, that late 90s, early 2000s were breaking into Hollywood stars' homes and they were stealing their property. Uh, there was a movie made about this, now there's a documentary. Um, it's pretty fascinating. It ends, though, with one of the thieves admitting that very last lines of the entire documentary, she admits that she stole, but she says, but you need to ask the question, what role does society bear in creating a place that I would need to steal these things to be happy? Yeah, yeah, I stole, but it's your fault. 
it's a sin almost as old as the written Bible itself, right? It's easy to pick on somebody in a Netflix documentary, but again, we have to ask the question, how often do you and I do that? How often are we confronted with our sinfulness and everything else is to blame? Notice Adam finally comes to it at the end of verse 12. After literally blaming every other person that there was at that moment in history, Adam finally says, I ate. I did it, God. Verse 13, uh, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. So it would be easy when we first encounter verse 13 to look at this. What is this that you have done? Uh, and think that God is now turning with some extra degree of all of this is your fault. What have you done? Um, but notice in verse 14, he's going to say a similar thing to the serpent. Because you have done this, right? So uh, it's difficult. In fact, your English teachers in the room will teach you that if you ever use uh, a relative pronoun, the word this, um, you have to give what it refers back to. Um, and that's uh, a little bit uh, tricky to decode in here. Um, I would suggest um, that we don't read this with the woman or the serpent as, because you've done this, that is tricking Adam. Um, but we read it as the entire situation here. The question is probably better if we phrase it in English as, so what did you do in all of this? Because the emphasis, just like on Adam, isn't, how did you cause this problem? It's Eve. What did you do in all of this? Now, notice her response. Similar to Adam, she begins uh, by blaming someone else. Uh, she gives a really true statement, though. She says, the serpent deceived me. It's not 100% true. It's just mostly true. And then much quicker than Adam... She comes to the point of saying, I ate. I, I did it, God. I did it too. If Adam tries to blame literally everyone else, Eve's statement doesn't blame as much as it just doesn't take full responsibility before she finally comes to it and says, I ate. So when this First confrontation in Genesis 3, the, the first uh, chunk that we have to deal with this morning. The Lord God calls to the man and his wife, and he asks them to confess their disobedience. And it's only after they attempt to vindicate themselves that ultimately they do confess. So again, I think you and I have to take pause for a moment. We have to ask how often do I do that? How often do I blame everyone else? Everything else? How often do I offer a slice of the truth, but not all of the truth? Without taking responsibility for my sin and saying, God, I did it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Think about how often an apology comes across as, yeah, I'm really sorry you felt that way. Have you ever received one of those apologies? It doesn't feel a whole lot like an apology, does it? Have you ever given one of those apologies? I think back to the Netflix thing. I mean, I did it. But what dark part did you play in making me do it? When something goes wrong, let's just admit it. Let's just come to God and say, I did it. I confess my sin. Don't play the victim. Don't like it, act like it's everybody else's fault. Don't give shades of the truth. False apologies. Just own it. Ultimately, that's what God came for in this first part of Genesis 3. 
And finally, the man and woman finally confessed, I ate. I did it. Uh, In the second section or the second chunk of Genesis 3 that we have to deal with this morning, God really wants them to see the mess of their new reality. So he, he comes for a confession of disobedience. Now he wants them to really see and sit in the reality that's now the state of humankind. Um, God will curse the serpent in the ground. It'll say that specifically. And he'll describe grave consequences for the man and woman. Not even a smile on that one, right? Adam's going to return to dust. These are grave consequences. Like, I'm, I'm trying to lighten the mood just a little bit here, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We, uh, we the readers, encounter a question when we come to this, right? Is, is just the part where he curses the serpent in the ground, is that God's judgment and condemnation? Um, or is it all God's judgment and condemnation? What do, we, what do we do with that? Does he actually curse in quotation marks, the man and the woman, when he pronounces what's going on with them. Um, I would actually suggest to you that it's a little bit of both. Um, So how do we get there? Notice that Genesis 3, 7, this was Carson's passage last week. It says that when they ate of the fruit, their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Now, Noah had read that the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. Genesis 3-7 tells us that immediately they make loincloths for themselves. So what I would suggest to you is in the text of Genesis, before the Lord even shows up, shame and alienation have already entered the picture. Because the two who were not ashamed now are trying to cover themselves up in front of one another. Sins entered the world, and already it's having its effect on the only relationship that exists, the man and his wife. Then in verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord God in the garden. And their response to that is to go try and hide amongst the trees. Right. So the text seems to describe that as soon as they eat, things begin to go very badly. You say, well, is God pronouncing judgment in this already broken, messed up world? I think so. Um, When we get to that middle section where he addresses the man and the woman, um, you're going to see God using I will statements. Right. So there is a messed up-ness to the world that has come into being. And Genesis describes that for us. And then there is God speaking into that. Um, I know that sounds bleak. Just hang on to the end of the sermon. It gets better, I promise. So let's take a look at Genesis 3, 14 together. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of your field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Um, Now, There are fun questions that come out of this. We might as well tackle the fun ones before we get to the serious stuff. Um, A lot of people ask the question, on your belly you shall go. So did the serpent originally have arms and legs and God took them away, right? So no more, now you get to crawl on your belly. Um, If you know Rob Craig, Rob Craig's famous saying is, never trust anything that doesn't have shoulders. Um, Rob is not a fan of snakes. He doesn't mean never trust anything that had its shoulders taken away. All right, so um, there there doesn't seem to be any indication that somehow the serpent looked differently, right? Like you would imagine maybe something like a four-legged dragon and God kind of lops those off. Um, So um, one of the questions that comes up though is who is the serpent really? What's going on here? Um, Genesis doesn't do a whole lot to answer that for us. The serpent shows up on the scene and he's the antagonist. He's the guy that uh, begins causing trouble Uh, The New Testament, on the other hand, uh, doesn't have a problem at all identifying this for us. Uh, The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, 9, 
Um, He says uh, that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Hear the Genesis language in there? The serpent, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Uh, John will reference this again in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, the, The prophet Ezekiel also helps us with this. Um, There was an ancient city on the coast, and the name of that city was Tyre, T-Y-R-E. It's not mentioned a lot in the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, but it does get an extended section in the book of Ezekiel. And uh, for those of you who have ever read the book of Ezekiel, you know Ezekiel loves uh, to blend spiritual realities, heavenly realities, with earthly realities, and events that are going on in his day. So when we read Ezekiel, uh, we have to do a little bit of work there to sort of pull the pieces out and say, all right, Ezekiel, what are you, what are you really communicating here? Um, so notice this passage. This is Ezekiel 28. Uh, God asks Ezekiel to raise a lament for the king of Tyre. And so Ezekiel says, you were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Apparently, Tyre was a beautiful city. One of their sins that they were guilty of was pride. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Wait, what? Like Tyre was not in Eden, the garden of God. What's what's going on here? So Ezekiel is, is blending the earthly and the spiritual, historical, all of these things together. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 16, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. See how everything just shifted back? Tyre was a trade city. So Ezekiel's shifting away from this analogy that he's giving back to the city of Tyre. In your trade, you were violent. You sinned. It goes on. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. When the lament is raised over the real city of Tyre and its real king, God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, weaves in the story of, you know, there was one far more powerful, far greater, far more prideful than you a guardian cherub. It was no problem at all for God to lay him low when he sinned. So the teaching moment for the king of Tyre is, it's not going to be a problem at all to lay you low. Right? But you and I are concerned with that second half of that. Who was the guardian cherub who was in Eden on God's holy mountain who was cast to the ground? that great serpent of old, John would say. Isn't it interesting that in Carson's sermon last week, he read the passage about Eve seeing that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. And here in Ezekiel, he accuses him of corrupting wisdom for the sake of splendor. Notice in our story, God questioned Adam and Eve. Even in the parts that we're about to read about them, it's not the end. He doesn't simply wipe his hands from them. You and I, in a few minutes, we're going to flip over to the New Testament. We're going to read Romans chapter 8. We're going to find out that the ground gets redemption. There's one character in this story that doesn't get redemption. 
In fact, that passage I mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, he's sealed forever in the lake of fire. The serpent, the devil, Satan, doesn't get redemption anywhere in the story. Let's move on and let's look at God speaking to the woman. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what does this mean? What does uh, enmity mean? I'm uh, reading from the ESV this morning. We'll talk about why English uh, versions matter in just a second. Um, Notice though it says that he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. I really appreciate that they did that because it is the same word. Um, And so it shows uh, that the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman are going to trade blows with each other. In John 8, Jesus warns a group of people that he's talking to. He says, you cannot hear my words because you are of your father, the devil. Jesus makes it clear that there are offspring of the serpent. There are children of their father, the devil. Paul uh, takes this a bit further in Ephesians 6. This is a passage you're all familiar with. Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says it's not just flesh and blood. There are cosmic forces at work here that are set against the children of God. In 1 Peter 5, 8, you heard Carson mention this last week. I'll mention it again this week. Peter tells us to be sober-minded because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In Genesis 3, 15, it's set up that the offspring of the serpent will cause problems until the end of time. King Keithley famously one time here at Northway quipped, the devil's not on a leash. So he's certainly under the sovereignty of God, right? But he wants to destroy all of you and me. Now, no doubt some of you are looking down and your English version that you have this morning doesn't say bruise and bruise. It says, he shall bruise your head and you, the offspring of the woman, will, I'm sorry, it says that uh, you'll bruise his heel. I said that backwards. Um, but the offspring of the woman will what his head? You can yell it out loud. Crush, absolutely. Where in the world do we get crushed from? If I just said this is the same word, why is one bruise and one crush? I'm so glad you asked. It actually comes from this guy in church history named Irenaeus. Uh, Irenaeus was a bishop in the 100s AD. Irenaeus was a disciple of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. It's actually said that Irenaeus heard the Apostle John teach. Irenaeus, of course, has all of Scripture before him. In fact, Irenaeus is one of the first champions of all four Gospels. So we know that within the 100s AD, Irenaeus has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he's one of the guys saying, yeah, these are, these are scripture. This is Bible right here. So he's reading all of scripture. And he comes back to Genesis 3.15 and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And Irenaeus says, aha, I know who this is. It's, everybody give the Sunday school answer. Jesus, that's exactly right. I love the little kid was the first one to yell that out. Thank you, wherever you were. Good job, right? So Irenaeus reads this interpretively and says, hey, this is the moment. This is the first promise in the Bible that one day an offspring of a woman is going to come and be the one ultimately to defeat the serpent, to not just bruise his head, but to crush 
him. It is the Apostle John, after all, who says in 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So we have Irenaeus and church history to thank for why do some of our English versions translate that that way? They interpret it that way for us. That ultimately, a seed will come, Jesus, and he will crush the serpent. Let's look down at the second part of that. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, no doubt some of you are looking down at your Bible right now. You heard Carter read contrary to, you just heard me read contrary to, and you're looking up on the screen and you're saying, that says your desire will be for your husband. What is going on here? I'm glad you asked. Um, so both Carter and I, at least I would assume Carter and I read from the ESV. ESV, yep, all right. Um, so in 2016, the translating committee for the English Standard Version of the Bible, uh, which is made up of both men and women, uh, decided that they wanted to come up with the best possible English translation. And when they came up with this best possible translation, they were going to make it a fixed translation. In other words, meaning now that we've done this, we've got a really, really good, they wouldn't say perfect, English translation, and we're never going to change it. We're done. They came out with a press release. You can go read about this on the web. Uh, Crossway Publishing put it out. But what they quickly realized when many of us wrote and complained um, was that you can't do that because the English language changes. Right? You might pick a perfectly good word, and 50 years from now, that word no longer means what that word meant. And you're like, what? No, really. In the 1800s, awful was a synonym of all some. In fact, it was actually greater, right? Because it wasn't just some all, it was full of all. Right? And everybody's like, no, that's not how we use that word at all. <laughs> right, because meaning shifted. And now that word has actually gone to the exact opposite and it's completely negative. Um, we could pl pick plenty of English words throughout history. Um, some, even over the course of my lifetime, 46 years, uh, have shifted in their meaning. And so we can't simply say we have a really, really great, nearly perfect English text and we're gonna leave it. This was one of the 50 changes that was made, by the way. So if you have an ESV prior to 2016, your ESV probably says your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. If you have one after 2016, which is what I read from, it says your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And I think we have a slide that shows that uh, compared to a lot of the other English versions. Yeah, there we go. So you see NIV, New American Standard, King James, Holman Christian Standard, Christian Standard, NRSV, like most of them have four in there. Your desire will be for your husband. Um, so where are they getting this from? Why would the ESV translators make that change over all the other changes? They're actually getting it from Genesis chapter four. In Genesis chapter four, when the Lord confronts Cain, he says, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same phrase in Genesis four that we have here in Genesis three. So when they're looking at this in context, which is a great thing to do when we're studying the Bible, they're like, you know, the sin's desire, it's not just for Cain. Like, it's absolutely against Cain. It's contrary to Cain. It wants to kill Cain. So we're going to make that stronger. And if we do it in Genesis chapter 4, we need to do it in Genesis chapter 3, because it's the same phrase. I would ask the question, 
is, it shall rule over you, or you must rule over it, if we're talking about Cain and sin there. Are we making that word strong enough then? Right? Because I don't think in that passage in Genesis 4, God's calling Cain to just sort of rule over your sin. Hey, you just got to rule over it a little better, right? Right? Like maybe if you'd lead your sin a little better, that would take care of all these problems. If we're going to make the first one the nth degree of how strong we translate it, then maybe we ought to do that with the second one. You've got to dominate your sin. You've got to crush it. You've got to wipe it out before it gets you. So we back up to Genesis chapter three. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will wipe you out. And everybody's like, no, wait, that's, that's, that's too strong. Let's not do that, right? So you, you see the difficulty here that the ESV committee is struggling with. So how can we read this is the question. Well, let's say that we start on the really strong side. Right? So Eve, you're so far called the woman. It's not to the end of this chapter that uh, she's named Eve. Um, So Eve, your desire will be contrary to Adam and he will lord it over you, rule over you. If we take it that way, then the man and the woman in this newfound reality at absolute worst are each other's nemesises. They're set against each other in this new reality. And you say, well, that's depressing. Yeah. Fear not. There's this thing called the New Testament. And with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, marriages can be good marriages. But in this reality that is entered in, there is something fundamentally broken in human relationships now. You say, well, is there, is there any like softer way to read this at all? Like maybe, maybe the man and his wife don't wanna just kill each other immediately. Uh, there actually is, uh, the word occurs one more time, desire, one more time in the Old Testament. It actually occurs in the book, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon or Canticles, whichever name your Bible gives it in the table of contents. And you all know the verse. It's the one where she says, I am my beloved's and he desires me. And you're like, oh, that's a good use. It is a good use. You're like, well, how could desire, if we read this word in that way, be part of the fall? Like, how is that a bad thing at all if it's used in such a positive way in Song of Songs? I think the Apostle Paul actually helps us with this. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 7, you don't have to do it right now. You can do it later this afternoon. Read the whole chapter. You'll get something out of it. Um, But Remember when Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 7, he's writing to men and women, he's addressing men first, um, about being married. And he says, you know, I really wish, my desire, the Apostle Paul speaking, would be that you would all be single like him. Why? Because, husbands, your desire will be for your wife and worldly things. You're gonna have to worry about a house, you're gonna have to worry about feeding people, you're gonna have to worry about keeping people happy. Then he turns around in a couple of verses and he says the same thing to the ladies. He says, "Um, I desire that you would be single because your desire would be for your husband. Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 7 that even though desire is a good thing, marriage is a good thing. That's how he starts that chapter. That it causes us to have divided loyalties. No longer is my focus completely and solely on pleasing the Lord. Now there's a whole lot of other things that are in there. So even if we take the best possible reading of desire in Genesis 3.16, there's still now divided loyalties. God's not first and foremost anymore. So at best, we're focused on all the other things that distract us from the Lord God. At worst, men and women are set against each other because of the fall. Let's take a look at Adam. 
Genesis 3, 17. Uh, And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Um, Again, great job in this English version uh, because they told Eve in pain she would bring forth children and Adam in pain he will eat of the ground. It is the same word. A lot of times we translate it as toil. Um, but both of them um, are struck in the very things that they were commanded to do in Genesis, right? Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, work and keep. Um, A good friend asked me, um, isn't it a bit reductionistic if we just take a look at in pain you'll bring forth children and in pain you'll eat of the ground, and make it just about having kids and sort of our creative work on this earth. Um, it is, it's, it's certainly not less than that. The curse is not less than those very things that Adam and Eve were given. Now resist them. But it's absolutely more than that. Um, many scholars will refer to the being fruitful and multiplying, um, keeping and subduing, Uh, They'll talk about that as human flourishing. Um, I don't necessarily love the word flourish, but it's a perfectly good word. Um, This idea that humans are all that humans are supposed to be. We might say human success, although we could mess that up with sort of the American dream of, I want a big house and a big job and four Mercedes in the yard or Maserati or Ferrari or whatever your favorite car is, right? Um, So essentially all that it is to be good and fully human. Now that's going to be done in pain because creation is going to work against the man and the woman. The way the world works now isn't going to work as well as it should as they're going about their work. It's also interesting in the Hebrew, listening Hearing, obeying, that's all the same word. Sound and voice are the exact same word. And so almost like bookends, I know they're not true bookends because this starts the section, it doesn't end it. Uh, But almost like bookends, we have this beginning with they hear the sound, the voice of the Lord God in the garden. And God says, Uh, to Adam, because you have listened or heard the voice of your wife. I would suggest, and some others would too, uh, that this is actually a big deal in the Old Testament. Um, Think about the number of times that you hear things like Israel hears the Lord God and they fear. The number of times that Moses has to tell them to hear or obey the Lord God in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, this sets up a, they didn't do it over here. So for a lot of the Old Testament, we're going to constantly reiterate this to them. You need to hear the voice of the Lord God. <clears throat> you say, well, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, like where is that at? Is there, is there a verse missing where Eve said, hey, Adam, eat this dummy. Right? Is that, is that what that's referring to? Uh, no, of course not. It's not there in the text. Um, notice if we go all the way back. Adam has been present for every bit of this. In Genesis 3, 6, Adam's barely an afterthought. It says that the woman sees that the fruit is pleasing to the eye and desirable. This is after the whole dialogue with the serpent. So she takes and eat. And then it says and gives it to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Adam's there. He literally hears every bit of this play out. Alan Ross, Old Testament scholar, he says this points to Adam's passivity. Adam doesn't care enough to intervene. 
And then he willfully thumbs his nose at the creator and eats the fruit. God tells Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Where Adam and Eve had every tree in the garden to eat from, now in pain or toil, work, they'll just get bread. Notice that the ground, the very source of Adam, right? He was taken from dust, resists him. If we back up, notice that Adam, the very source of Eve, resists her, right? The sources resist now in the work. So we we started this talking about the great reversal that happens in Genesis chapter three. The good news of the Bible is it's not the greatest reversal in scripture. The greatest reversal comes because God is a loving and merciful judge who doesn't wash his hands of his creation and say, well, y'all created this mess, now live with it. In multiple places in the New Testament, at least three we're gonna look at, the apostle Paul reflects on the fall in Genesis three. Uh, One of those is Romans chapter eight. Many of you are familiar with this verse. Paul says that all of creation was subjected to futility and now it waits for the redeeming of man. He says that creation itself will be set free from its bondage and its corruption and it will be given the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In Romans 8.22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, waiting on this. You hear the language of Genesis 3 there coming out in Romans chapter 8. A second passage that reflects on the fall is Romans chapter 5, if we just back up a couple of chapters. Um, Paul talks about this in a long section of chapter 5, verses 12 all the way through 21. Um, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's talking about Adam, and death through sin, the end of the curse there, right? From dust you were taken and to dust you will return. Death spread to all men because of all sinned. Skip down to verse 14. Um, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, right? So just in case anybody has this crazy thought this morning of, hey, I haven't picked any fruit, thumbed my nose at God and then eaten it. I'm okay. The apostle Paul wants you to know you're not okay. And he uses an Old Testament example to show that. Listen, Even after Adam, all the way up until the law is given, mankind are still sinners, every last one of us, and all deserving of death. But notice what he says at the end of 14 about Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And all of us reading it are like, wait a minute, Adam was a type? What do you mean he was a type? Don't worry, Paul's going to answer that for us. But he goes on before he answers that. He says, the free gift was not like the trespass. Verse 15, for if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam again, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift even after many trespasses brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through the one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, all were made sinners, Adam. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Paul uh, addresses the law a bit. And then we come to verse 21. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The great reversal that was started in Genesis 3 gets reversed again. This time not by the man and his wife, but by God himself, the eternal son, Jesus the Christ. Adam brought sin and death into the world. Jesus brought the grace of God. Adam's sin brought judgment and condemnation for everyone. Jesus brings an abundance of grace and justification. One act led to condemnation. The other man's act led to justification and eternal life. Paul's going to speak of this one more time in 1 Corinthians 15. The Corinthians, like many, are struggling with this concept of resurrection. And so Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians 15. And in 20 and 21, he says, For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul goes on and he explains, he gives an example of what it means to be sown and die and come alive as a new thing. We might think here of like a seed, right? So a seed goes into the ground and it dies to being a seed and it comes alive to being something like a tree. And so Paul says, um, death reigned, oh, sorry, I skipped to the wrong spot. Um, After giving that example, Paul comes down and he says um, in verse 42, skipping to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. What's sown in a natural body is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living body. Remember back to that first week when God breathes life into Adam? The last Adam that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, it's the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as, catch this, just as we have borne the image of dust. What were we created for in Genesis? We were created to bear the image of God. What are we really good at? Bearing the image of Adam in sinfulness. But Paul tells the Corinthians, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will look like the son who loves the father and is delighted to do the will and obey the Father's voice. In Genesis 3, the Lord God came to get a confession from the man and his wife, and he allows them to both experience the mess that life has become, and he explains to them the grave consequences of this life that's come. But God, the loving and compassionate judge, doesn't leave them there. 
He sent the eternal son, Jesus, to do what only God can do, to destroy the works of the devil, to bring righteousness instead of condemnation, to bring eternal life instead of death. So let me encourage you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if there's sin there that you're still trying to hide and you haven't just said, God, I did it, then there will always be elders down front, ladies from the women's ministry team, if you want someone to pray with you. Let me encourage you along with the words of Psalm 95, as long as it's called today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart.